HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Food and memories. Food memories. We're going to talk about all of that today on A Taste of the Past. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history or on this journey through the history of our lives. It's all about food, either way you look at it. And indeed, food and smells are two of the tastes and smells are, are two things that can set off very intricate memories. And my guest today is an author who writes with that evocative sense of food and, and smell and and her life and memories of of her family. It is indeed a memoir about family, but it's a memoir about food. And I'm talking about Alyssa Altman and her new book, Trafe, My Life as an Unorthodox Outlaw. Alyssa is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir Poor Man's Feast. Excellent, and I love and I love the blog Poor Man's Feast, and she also has another column, um, Feeding My Mother. So is it Feeding My Mother? I have to feed my feeding. I well, I do have to feed my mother, but um, <laughs> yeah. feeding feeding my mother, feeding uh, my mother, right? Okay, right. Um, and and that's the uh, that's the column you write in the Washington Post. I, I wrote it for a year, uh, and for, now it's just a and, and exactly, yeah, exactly. So it morphed into your own to another blog. Yes. I see. Okay, um, and her work has appeared in. Lots of magazines, um, including the New York Times and Oprah Magazine. And her work has been anthologized for five consecutive years in best food writing. She lives in Connecticut with her family. And she you're also a cookbook editor. You were for a long time. You, are you still editing? Very infrequently. Okay. Um, I'm writing full time now. now um, who has time to edit someone right. else's work? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, you've been a personal chef and a caterer and all those food things that people do wear so many hats when they're in the food world. We right? all do them. Right. Um, and the Poor Man's Feast blog won a James Beard 
um, award. And congratulations. Thank I just you. and I, I just I do so enjoy that. Thank you, know, you so much. It. Thank you. It is very much like the. I mean, I have to say that I sort of just traveled from your blog right into the book, and it and. Your voice is there. It's your. It's the same. Your voice is very strong. And this book, Trafe, is indeed a memoir about family. But these memories are all. They're all inspired by food. They pretty are, much. Pretty much. They they are all inspired by food. And and um, you know I I grew up in in a place uh, where. My mother and father had oppositional relationships with food and the table, and I got very different messages from them. The one message that I got from them was that food uh, could be forbidden. Um, and, of course, that's what Trafe refers to. That's what the, what the title refers to. Um, but I grew up in the 1960s and 70s at a time where there was a lot of the forbidden going on mm-hmm. all around. Yeah, so Trafe becomes this trope for... Your outlaw status, as you put it, that's exactly right. In every in every way, shape, and form. Right, so, right. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because the book. I mean, people will just have to pick up the book and read it for themselves because it's just it's one of these things that you that you can. It's a straight read through. You can't put it down. You just have to go right from beginning to end. Thank you. Um, and it's um, as one inner one um, reviewer said the. Um, Trafe, the unkosher and the prohibited, as you said, but then also, according to your grandmother, a great figure in the book, it also, as we said before, it's, it stands for imperfect, intolerable, broken, offensive, b- filthy, forbidden, illicit, you know, rule-breaking. And that really then comes from food and a meaning of food. Let me ask you, in food, and you've been editing for so many years and now you're writing full time to be a good food writer your food it's your food writing is not like you're not going to pick up it's not the same as picking up a magazine and leafing through and reading an article about someone's trip to Paris and what they ate Um, but it is food writing on a different level it's food writing as literature and thank you what do you feel about writing to be a good writer to be a good food writer what what are some of the things that are important to you? Well, I think that um, I think that memory is um, for me anyway is um, certainly visual and um, olfactory, but it's taste as well. And so, as a writer, um, I. I immediately, uh, when I when I think about my my past growing up in the 1960s and 70s, and New York was a very very different kind of food place than mm-hmm. uh, than, than it is now, and and with very definite um, flavors and scents and and tastes, and those are the things that spur my memory. And so when I sit down to write, and I'm writing about you know, walking down Third Avenue and 81st Street in the 1970s with my parents or with my dad, um, there were a lot of German restaurants in that in that area. There mm-hmm. was a very famous bakery called Mrs. Herbst Bakery, which is long defunct. Um, I think actually Nora Ephron wrote a, a brilliant article about um, a cabbage strudel. I mean, who eats cabbage strudel, <laughs> right? right? And, and Mrs. Herbst was like the only place in New York City where, where you could get that. And 
and I remember that smell, and and that's what spurs the memory for me. That's what compels me uh, to to sit down and to try and and recreate that um, the smell and the taste and the flavor and what was going on, and and then that um, that sort of results in memories of what what people were wearing and what people right. looked like and and music that i was hearing at at that time and and it's a it's a it's a sort of um multi um sense experience right. for for me right well, we all have triggers well, of course triggers become this bad buzzword but <laughs> we all have things that trigger our memory and and indeed food for people who i think are we were talking before the show people who are Foodies, if you will, I hate, hate that word, but you know sometimes it's it's very descriptive. Right, <laughs> we know very, who we are. Right. right, very involved with food. You know, food is often what it is. A lot of people, as you mentioned, they'll remember exactly what they wore in nineteen seventy-five to so and so's you know party. Right. I will always remember what was served. I'll always remember what I ate. I don't know what I wore, but yeah. I know what I ate. Yeah, and that's and so food is always you know. They're up front in my in my mind. Yeah, yeah, and I think that I think that if you ask a lot of um, of, of of food writers, I you know I'm, I'm loath to say foodies, but yeah. foodies, yes. you know that's food what writer. we're talking about. Food writers, food writers, um, and and even people who are not food writers, but that's their way into that's their way into into memory. Um, I think that there are a lot of really brilliant writers out there who are not necessarily. Food writers, we wouldn't call them food writers, mm-hmm. but they but they can write brilliantly and evocatively. Well, look about, at Calvin Trillin. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, Mary Carr is certainly another right. person who, and I've and I said to her not not you know long ago, maybe a couple of years ago. So when you you know when are you going to write your food memoir? And she just <laughs> sort of cringed, digitally cringed. I could sort of hear it, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, and Ruth Rachel went from you know the food. The food, literal, literally, food world of cooking and 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 then editing, of course, gourmet magazine to writing memoirs too, um, and effectively. And I think that it's that it is such a sensory food is such a sensory item product um, that it it is encompasses so much more, right, you right. know, that and that has to be written about um, in. It's certainly in your in your book, um, and I said we weren't going to go too much in the book, but of course I have of to. Of course you have to. Yeah. <laughs> there, you talk a lot about, of course, the um, the importance of Chinese restaurants in your life. Expand upon that a little bit. I mean, did you feel like an outlaw every time you walked into a Chinese restaurant? I, you know, I. It's a funny thing. I there I, are kosher Chinese restaurants. There, there are, but there weren't back then. Right. And right. and my 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 dad, my beloved dad, who I lost in two thousand and two. Always used to say that you could you could you could tell a Jewish neighborhood by the number of Chinese restaurants in it, hmm. and and he could never explain that to me. And I, I you know I have um, I have a, a lot of, of Chinese American friends who I have asked. So how, what's this connection? And that and I think part of it is um, being uh, being an outsider um, early on in the twentieth century and. Being a part of a very specific community, and certainly at Christmas time, if you were, you know, if you were Jewish and you were looking for a restaurant to eat in during Christmas time, they were all closed, right? Except for the Chinese restaurants. Right. So there, you know, there, there's that. I also think that there's definitely a, um, a culinary connection 
between kreplach and dumplings. Uh-huh. Um, sure. I mean, that makes sense, right? right? And um, but but for me, um, growing up in Forest Hills in the '60s and '70s. There was um, a Chinese restaurant that was literally at the center. It was sort of like the aorta, the aortic, <laughs> like the center of town. Um, Queens Boulevard came out of it in one direction, and, and Yellowstone Boulevard came, came out of it in another direction. And um, the place was called the Tongsheng House, and it 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 was a couple of blocks from the from our synagogue. And everybody went there um, Sunday nights. Every Jewish family in New- in Forest Hills was lined up waiting. I think you could say predominantly in New York, right? In, in, right, predominantly in New, in New York, right? Um, uh, was li- was lined up, you know, waiting waiting to get in. And and as I I relate the story early on in the book, in the opening um, the opening scene where, you know, I go to a bat mitzvah of, of a friend of mine who was fairly religious, far more religious than I was growing up, and we all went out for our luncheon at the Tongsheng house afterwards. And of course, what was being served was shrimp and lobster sauce. <laughs> and I didn't really think anything about that, but I suddenly was very inquisitive about what the pink-tipped meat floating in the wonton soup was. And my father said, shut up, just, you know, eat it. And <laughs> and I, you know, I thought it was chicken, but it, of course, wasn't. Um, and so, you know, there was a little bit of the, there was the forbidden there. Um, and whenever we went there, that's you know we, we we used to my father used to also like to say that um, that pork uh, pork is not kosher unless it's in an egg roll, um, so <laughs> and and I think a lot of Jewish listeners will you know will relate to that. I, I think you're I think Probably you're absolutely right <laughs> right. right. Um, well, and, and when did the food taste better because it was forbidden? Well, I didn't you know I didn't really I didn't really know that it was forbidden for a long time. It just it just sort of was until I had that sort of that moment of saying, "Hey, Dad, you know what's this pink tipped right. meat?" Yeah. Then he kind of cringed and <laughs> bristled. Um, it was salt. It hit every um, you know every taste, every sensor. Uh, so it was salty and sweet and crunchy and fried and all of those things that we you know that we all that we all love so much and. To this day, um, my comfort food is, um, you know, I love chicken soup and I love, uh, you know, I love traditional comfort foods, but my go-to comfort food, if I am not, if I'm under the weather, is Chinese food. Hmm. That's interesting. And where I live in, you know, in northern Fairfield County in Connecticut, um, there's not a whole lot of it up there, but um, but that's my go-to always. And it's just not the same when you cook it yourself, even though you can make really fine uh, you I, know, I sweet and sour soup. It's yeah, just I think not it's the a, same. It's if you not. Get it. It's not. And I think I think it's a heat thing. Um, I do think it's a heat thing. Hmm. And and um, you know, we most of us just can't get our walks that hot, right. and we just don't. I would like to say that I have a feel for cooking Chinese food, and I may I make it a lot, but um, but it's not the same as the Tongsheng House. Hmm. Of course, there's the MSG issue also. That's yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you did describe a very um, very sensual, in a way, scene parts of it when um, you bought uh, and ordered half a pig, and then and then didn't go into all the recipes and cooking, but a few and and the whole. And of course, the poor man's feast, of, you know, has the the symbol of the pig, yeah, you know, on, yeah. the, on the front of it. That so you just, I mean, everything has been, you know, cast to the winds, and you now buy 
a side of pork in. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I love, I love pork. And to be clear, I, you know, I didn't grow up in a kosher household. And, and um, my father um, was um, born here. His father uh, was born, as they say, in the old country um, and came here at 11 years old by himself in 1905. Um, and settled in New York, um, and you know, wound up working for the for the Daily Forward, the Jewish Daily Forward, and and um, a couple of other um, newspapers, and was very involved in Yiddish theater. And in his home, my grandfather's home, they kept kosher. Um, but my father was my father considered himself American through and through. And when he went off uh, to the Navy to be a night fighter pilot. And he was a 19-year-old um, officer away from home for the first time. Um, his officer's club fed him an all-pork dinner, and he never went back. I mean, he, su- he suffered from, I think, guilt-related hives um, <laughs> and wrote a letter home, famously wrote a letter home from the, from the base hospital saying, you know, I'm in the hospital, mom and dad, don't worry about me. It must have been something I ate and just sort of <laughs> left it at that. But he taught me to love everything and to eat everything. But still, having 150 pounds of pork in my car, driving it home from the farmer um, on a day that happened to be the Jewish Sabbath. Um, had to weigh a little heavy on it you. It weighed a little <laughs> bit like an albatross, right? Yeah, it was a little bit. I was dodging the lightning bolts, right? Yeah, right. totally. Yeah. Well, um, not only does food evoke a lot of memories, but it does also bring about many feelings of guilt in many ways. And I want to get into more of that when we come back after a short break. So stay with us. This one is called Carried Away by the Hollows. We'll be right back. The independence of his body is separated. Yeah, I can feel it pulling apart. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit TabardIn.com. Hi, we're back. I'm talking with Alyssa Altman, and Alyssa is a food writer, memoirist, uh, just a writer. I, I'm this food writer. You don't have to always be writing about food, although you do primarily always have something about food in your writing. Well, we eat. Yeah. We all eat. Uh, her blog, Poor Man's Feast, is a must-read if you are looking for a new blog to follow. And her newest book is called Trafe. Uh My Life as an Unorthodox Outlaw. I always got to get that straight. <laughs> um, but 
aside from food, and we we're talking about how food evokes so much of our memories, food memories, oftentimes one of the first questions um, someone will ask a person trying to get them to to get creative is, what's the first thing you remember eating? What's your first food memory? I think mine changes every time I think about it, but I don't. Do you have a first food memory? My first food memory... That's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I, my grandmother, uh, my mother's mother, who is uh, called Gaga in the in the book, and that's what I called her, um, didn't live with us, but she was in our house all the time. And and I thank God for that because I think if she wasn't there, I probably would have withered away. Um, <laughs> she was she was uh, the greatest natural cook um, I've I've ever known, and and. Um, she was a, an amazing Hungarian goulash maker, and she just uh, her, she was born here. Both her parents came from Budapest, um, and I I have very you know profound memories tied to uh, tied to sitting at at our breakfast counter and eating eating that that side by side um, with her. Um, my father was a wonderful cook. My father was a gr- was a great cook. Um, he was a he was a breakfast guy, as a lot of guys hmm. are. You know, breakfast. But he would sort of go out and hunt and gather, kind of thing. You know, <laughs> and always come back. You know, most most um, most Jewish guys come back on uh, Sundays with bagels and lox, and, and he did that. He did that a lot. But um, but his his thing was was bacon and eggs. You know, um, and there was always sort of a a fatty porcine mist of you know bacon grease floating in our, <laughs> in the air and. And uh, you know you could sort of feel it on the wallpaper oh, yeah. a, little, a little bit. The dog was always drooling, and and uh, you know so so there was you know there there was that um, you know there was a lot of there was a lot of of food in my life. Um, not all of it good. My mother uh, had a had a habit of always incinerating the lamb chops whenever she made it. That was a scene that I wanted to bring up about because you mentioned something before about food and. It, Depending on who prepares it, and food is love. Well, not necessarily always. Food is memories. Food is guilt. Um, and you did, you did write a beautiful scene. Well, maybe not beautiful, but wrenching scene <laughs> about you. your mother um, burning the the lamb chops every like, single time she made it. Every uh-huh. every little literally. And I I am. Um, I have been historically pyrophobic, so I've not been a great griller um, in in my life as a food person, um, and that's changing now. Uh, over the years, it's changed, but um, every time my mother made lamb chops, she would buy these these, co- and I don't know why she bought kosher because we were not kosher, but um, the rib chops that were very very fatty. I mean, anybody who eats lamb knows that that it's particularly fatty. She would sort of rub them down with vegetable oil of some make them smoke even more. indeterminate <laughs> variety. Yeah. Put them in broiler foil. You remember broiler foil? <laughs> yeah. Stick it in the broiler in the the very the bottom drawer of our chambers um, oven and broil it. To put it on broil and walk away from it. <laughs> and eventually, and these were before the, this was before the days of, um, of of smoke alarms and fire alarms. Um, the dog would start to bark, and flames would would lick out of the broiler and up the side, up the front of of the uh, the stove, which was white. And my grandmother invariably had, you know, this sort of schmaltz caked, floured terry cloth 
towel that she would beat at the flat, and I would run screaming into the other room, you know, with the dog because I I was terrified of fire. But on the on this particular occasion um, that you're talking about in in the book, um, my my parents had a huge blowout, um, one of many, but they had a huge blowout, and my father stormed off for for a couple of days, and we didn't know where he was, and and my mother, I'm not sure sure she was so worried about where he was, but. He did come back um, two or three days later, and as she had promised me, he would. And she decided to make a quote-unquote celebratory meal <laughs> of, of lamb chops, and she completely incinerated them. And she called for us, dinner served, you know, and we came in, and they were, you know, you had to sort of scrape off the, you know, the char, Um and I think of places now, um, you know, that that do a lot of open fire cooking, like Camino out in San Francisco. Mm. Um, I just can't. I can't get near. You know, <laughs> I can't get near grilled lamb chops now because because of this. But but what happens to food when you when you char it? You know, I'm sure that's a chem, it's a chemical reaction. And Harold McGee would would he would, he, he would, he would you tell know. you in cha- chapter and verse what it was. But it 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 has a very strong, pronounced bitter flavor. Mm-hmm. And so my connection to that particular occasion is that the taste of food cooked in anger, anger. Yeah. and fury and rage in in my mouth and it and actually having that bitter flavor. Right. And you even yourself brought up um, uh, the, uh, I'm blanking on the author, but like water for chocolate. Oh, that, Laura Escovelli. Yeah, yeah, Laura. And mm-hmm. it's it is that ring so true with me that that book when i when i read that is that you can't you can't cook well when you're angry you can't cook that well when you're sad unless you're trying to make someone else not feel so sad Um, but the emotions food is evokes a lot of emotion and then emotions affect food as well it is true it's very true it it is true and i i don't think that we is that we um i don't think that we talk about that enough um in the the world of food writing and and um, not food writing but but writing in which food plays has a, a part, has yeah. plays a part and it doesn't always have to be categorized as food writing. Right. Um, we don't talk about food that is uh, cooked in anger, food that is cooked in sadness. Um, it's not always comforting. Um, it is memory. It it does you know become a memory uh, for some of us. But it, it's not always comforting, and it's not always lovely, and it's not, and and that's part of the sort of human condition at the table. It yeah. just is what it is. Uh, I am not a recipe follower. I I read recipes voraciously, but then I cook my own thing, and the family inevitably said, "Well, how come it didn't turn out like it did last time?" Uh, it's because I'm feeling different. I am, you know, right. I am a different person today than I was that Yesterday. day. You know, yeah. <laughs> right. and, and it just came out a little different. You know, aside from you know, different ingredients and yeah, amounts, yeah. but yeah, it's it, food is is it's it's very organic. You know, it's got to change. It it is very organic, and and you know, I, I said recently that um, you know, when you write about food and you're writing about about taste and flavor and um, the olfactory, it's um, it's writing from senses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, writing about sex is not that, is not that different, mm. you know. And um, you just have to pay attention. 
<laughs> you just have to really pay attention to, to what you're to what you're experiencing. That's as that's, a writer. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, so we talk a lot about food and memories and food memories, but food also often represents guilt. Yes, and, it does. Um, and guilt in, in a lot of ways. And of course, we all know there are a lot of food uh, body issues and food related issues with um, women in particular. Yes. Any thoughts on that? Well, you know, as I said um, earlier, I grew up in a in a household where my my parents had oppositional relationships, not only to each other, but also to the table and to and to food. And my father, um, you know, was what we what we would call um, a fresser. You know, my father mm. loved food in all of its guises: um, high food, low food, fancy food. Brennan in cars out here in Brooklyn. I don't know if if you know listeners will will remember it. Um, and my mother didn't and doesn't. And my, my mother is a uh, former model. She's a former television singer. And she grew up uh, in the late 1930s and 40s, always feeling that she was very heavy. And I've seen pictures of her taken at that time. And she might be a little bit heavy, but, but nothing. You know, I never would have said that had, had I looked at, at those pictures of her. And her goal in life was to be on this newfangled thing called television in the late 1940s. And she uh, had been a radio singer where nobody could see her, you know. And so when she became a television singer, she dropped an, an enormous amount of weight. Mm. And so her relationship, food for my mother is um, when she eats it, is fuel, devoid of emotional, um, psychological connection, uh, good or bad. It's just, it's just, it just is what it is. Flavor doesn't really enter in for her. It's, it's not the, something that she's particularly cognizant of. But I grew up um, believing that food was, on the one hand, from my dad. Um, something extraordinary and cultural and historical and you could talk about war vis-a-vis food Mm -hmm. you know but with where my mother was concerned I learned to um, not really hide what I eat because that's not something that I that I ever did but to be very cognizant of my size and my inclination to always be thinking about you know food and and then when you know when I decided to go into the food world professionally and I had worked at Dean and DeLuca many 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 years ago in in its original um, in the original store um, I remember her saying to me you know why would you why would you want to be seen in a place like you know, like Dean and DeLuca. And of course, anybody who remembers that, um, that, that place, the original store, it was like a wonderland. I mean, I learned everything that I, that I, I mean, I was like a sponge, but with my mother, you know, eating, eating represents, um, it's not even a guilty pleasure. It's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of guilt. And she still is, um, She's tall, she's thin, she's willowy. I don't think she's ever tipped tip the scales higher than 115 pounds. Hmm. Um, she and I, people look at the two of us and like, are you related? Because you don't look related. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I have to tell you that, because I've seen a lot of pictures of her on your yeah. blog, and, and you, she is, you do look so much alike. Now, maybe it's in, in her older age, but I think I 
you look very much like so funny. very pretty but you have the, thank you the well maybe her short haircut you know does it possibly you know, but, possibly yeah <laughs> but it's it's wonderful yeah food and, and guilt well there's guilt in a lot of other ways with food that um, women in particular you know feasting or fasting I mean you know it's brought down by many religions and and um, and then it plays into their body image and absolutely absolutely I was actually just talking um, about um, to uh, to Diana Henry the the British food writer um, I was just talking about uh, the I have this crazy and it is a little bit of an obsession which is ironic um, this obsession with moderation um, and where moderation um, issues of moderation fall in our food community, because we do either feast or we fast, mm-hmm. um, and you know we go on to anybody anybody's blog, mine included, um, in January and mid January, and it's all about you know the detox and the re, you know post holiday blues, post holiday <laughs> and blah 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 and. You know, I, I mean, the holidays are the holidays. That's just what happens, you know, and, and, and that's a good thing. I don't think we should eat that way all the time. Um, but the whole feasting and fasting um, thing has, I think, taken hold of our, of our culinary mindset um, and, and certainly body image mindset in, mm-hmm. in, this, in this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure what to do about that except to pay more attention to it. Well, and I think through your writing, you, I mean, just giving voice to so many of these feelings that people maybe are not aware of mm-hmm. and that, that you really do um, bring them out in in a lot of different ways, you know, through the guilt, through the through the memories, through yeah, whatever yeah. it may be, you know, it's it all works. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, and of course, guilt in, in many ways, trafe, as I said, being this trophy for all the, you know, the... The, the ways that you go against you're going outlaw you're being an outlaw in yeah. orthodox unorthodox and and it always gets back to food somehow it always comes back to food I mean food you know that's a food food is the is the the tie that binds the generations and uh, it it's where the the rules were most ardently and immediately broken and easily broken um, you know the the old expression you are what you eat mm. um, and you know, my, my father, when he went off to the Navy, he began, he ate completely different, differently than he did when he was living at home on Ocean Parkway and Avenue T with my grandparents in this Orthodox household. And, um, and everything changed for him, not always for the, for the better, but, but everything, everything changed for him. Mm. Well, I, for one, am happy you wrote this book because it was a pleasure for me to read it. And as I say, it, I think we talked before the show, it transcends transcends any particular religion, any particular growing up family. It's anyone can recognize what's going on and, and will relate to it in their own background, I would imagine. I mean, <laughs> well, thank, thank you. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I, I have, I have friends from, from all backgrounds, um, you know, Turkish friends who I've known for years who, uh, who have struggled with, um, issues of, you know, assimilation and family expectation. And, 
uh, and ultimately in rule breaking. And so, you know, they get it. It's like that old, you know, Levy's rye bread ad. You don't have to be Jewish to love Levy's, right? <laughs> so it's the same, yeah. it's the yeah. same idea. Right. <laughs> if you don't follow tradition, you, something must be wrong with me. What's wrong with right. me? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me. Thank you for talking about it. Thank you for writing the blog, Poor Man's Feast. And keep on writing. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.